Hello, I'm Doug Hadaway. You're listening to Achieve Great Things, where we talk about the power of strategy, science, and storytelling to help you achieve ambitious goals for people and the planet. Today, we're talking to Sam Gill, Vice President of the Knight Foundation. Knight works to advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Sam wrote an article on Knight's blog with a provocative headline, How Digital Pollution is Poisoning Democracy and What We Can Do About It. He says the warning lights are flashing, The challenges of the digital age are posing fundamental challenges to our democracy. And he offers provocative ideas for a new paradigm to address the unsettling change wrought on our world by the internet. And let's start with a bit of background on the Knight Foundation and your focus on journalism. The foundation was started by two brothers who built one of America's largest 20th century newspaper companies and had a real mission-oriented mindset about journalism. What was their philosophy about the role of journalism in civic life? I mean, they felt pretty fundamentally that um, information is really one of the rudiments of civic life. Uh, Jack Knight, uh, in a speech, uh, once said that the sort of goal of a newspaper is to um, provide a community with information. And what he sort of uses it that it will sort of bestir the people uh, to pursue their true interests. And I think, um, I think both of the, both the word bestir is important. And I think the term true interest is really important, which is that having a report of what's going on in the community produced by people in the community, um, that has context associated with it, both a catalyst for a spark for the thing that we call civic life and civic engagement, but it's also that it's not just my my partial interest, it's the true interest of the community. And the true interest of the community is the thing that we arrive at together through the process of deliberation, through the process of illumination of fact. If I, if I uh, assert a future for a community uh, that's not based on fact, then it's not that community's true interest. Or if it is, it's only a true interest by coincidence um, rather than by inference. Yeah, and the foundation really does focus on community as part of its mission as well. Tell us about your role there. What do you do at the Knight Foundation? Yeah, I work. Um, I work with the the folks who um, who oversee our grant making in twenty six places where the Knight brothers owned and operated newspapers, and then I also oversee uh, our research and evaluation team with both with uh, with which assesses uh, the work of the foundation, which commissions uh, research intended to improve understanding in the fields where we work and which supports increasingly grant making uh, on, um, on areas of scholarly inquiry relevant to the future of an informed society. And you sounded an alarm about the state of journalism and democracy in the world today. I know you've done a lot of thinking about this and worked with a lot of great people in the field. Um, let's hear your story. What prompted this concern for you personally? Well, I, you know, Knight Foundation, you know, I, be, because of the values of the Knight Brothers, has been um, working really hard over the past decade plus to account for the way in which technology is, you know, fundamentally changing the game uh, for how community is informed. And, you know, that really predates. I think what's become a society-wide conversation about just the fundamental health of our democracy. Uh, I mean, I, you know, we're having the most explicit conversation we've certainly had in my lifetime about um, about just how healthy um, not just American democracy is, but developed democracies in general uh, mm-hmm. are around the globe. 
uh, our our view is that the role that we have to play as a Knight Foundation is really on the question of trust and and the declining levels of trust in institutions of all kinds, including journalism. And so, um, you know, we announced in February um, a three hundred million dollar commitment over five years to uh, to help to rebuild trust. Uh, in information at the local level, which obviously, you know, as you point out, comes from the intent of our founders and is a, is a place where it's really been ground zero for the decimation of a lot of what we think of as the kind of information people need uh, to navigate their communities. And, um, and a big part of that investment, you know, has been in trying to find uh, a new sustainable business model for local journalism. I, you know, yeah. I think uh, we're opt a lot of us are optimistic that the thing journalism does, which is to produce facts and context and discussion about community in a way that has authority is possible. I don't know that we're saying what about the mode of production, you know, that dominated most of the past hundred years. And so for trying to figure out a new way of gathering this information and presenting it that's relevant to audiences, that's relevant to the current moment is where we see significant opportunity. As a part of this, you know, it, we are also, um, we're also sober um, about the, the really fundamental shifts that are happening in the way information is, uh, is produced and distributed and consumed and how that changes the very fabric of our democracy. I mean, the reality is that, you know, most people are getting information maybe through something like this which is a, a form of digital communications following them around in their phones. Um, a lot of people are getting information through uh, social media uh, platforms that, you know, didn't exist 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, I think when, when, the, when, the, when the mode of production and the mode of connection so dramatically changes, you know, it's naive to think uh, that that's not going to have an impact uh, on the way uh, people and communities and whole societies Make decisions. I think we're already seeing signs that those shifts are underway, and so, um, so a part of our investment, you know, will include that inquiry into what exactly it means for our democracy that a huge dimension of our lives is now lived uh, is now lived uh, through digital experience. You know, that's a long way of explaining, you know, where my my personal interest is, which is, um, which is trying to figure out, um, you know, how we account. Um, for for the more pervasive role that this technology plays in our lives, and just how fundamental some of these shifts are, and uh, you know the point that I've tried to make through some of my work is that um, this is sort of in the words of Lincoln, you know, not only a time to act anew, but it's a time to think anew um, about the about the about the the sinews, uh, you know, that connect societies. And I've seen a number of uh, reports and outputs from work you have already been doing. And there's this packed with really interesting and some surprising insights in this context where we as consumers have access to more information than ever before at our fingertips. Uh, but you found, I'm thinking specifically of your survey of some 20,000 people by the Gallup organization, that with all that information at our fingertips, most of us actually feel overwhelmed rather than better informed. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's the, both the paradox of our current digital age, but also illuminates something really important about what a democracy and a society requires, which is the, the paradox is, you know, it's just never been easier um, um, to get accurate information about what's going on in the world, ever. 
you know, in human history. I mean, if you want to understand what's happening somewhere, it is easier and cheaper for you personally to do it than at any other time in history. For, for distance, first of all, has mattered substantially, you know, for most of human history. Um, but also the authority behind facts. I mean, that you know, for the largest part of human history, you know, revealed truth has been the most important source of information. And it's really only a narrow part of history that we've actually had a profession around making sure that people get accurate information that we've assigned, you know, both intrinsic and extrin extrinsic worth to accurate information. So it's, it is, it's just factually the case that now is an easier time in a technical sense to be informed. On the other hand, the, the overwhelming amount of information and the way that we consume it in many cases passively through alerts and information that's sort of pushed at us through our devices, you know, people are saying is really overwhelming for them. They don't feel as informed, even though they technically have the mm -hmm. means to do so. So that's the paradox. I think what this also illuminates is that the condition of being informed is not merely access to information. It's something else. There's something else about how we get information, the way it's presented, uh, what we're able to do with it, that is what it means to be informed in the sense that democracies talk about information. That's the place where we think really a lot more uh, research and scholarly inquiry is going to be really critically important, which is that, um, which is that we're, which we, that the definition of being informed in a democracy is going to require something different uh, than it did in the era of three broadcast networks and a paper in every town. What other insights jumped out at you from the work you've done so far? I just referenced that one study by Gallup. Any, what other things surprised you in your inquiry thus far? Yeah, I, you know, I think the extent to which um, the extent to which broader trends of polarization in our society are really kind of eating our information ecosystem alive. I mean, one of the persistent things that we found in our research is that. Um, people now approach the news with a side. And the question they ask is, you know, what side is this source on? And that really is the opposite of how a lot of journalists at, at venerable news organizations think of, of their work. I mean, they, it's not that they're naive that people have points of view, but they assume and to some extent count on people with a point of view saying, well, these are the facts. And I'm going to interpret these facts in the context of what I think is right or wrong for myself or for my community or for my country. And that's just not the case. I mean, just over and over again, we find that you know, people are you know, incredibly suspicious of you know, the bias that news organizations have. So I think that that's partly a function of of uh, the kinds of the, the sort of the polarization that's taking over our society. I think it's also a function of this digital reality, which is so much content is coming at us from people who have a point of view. I mean, so much of the internet is really about disclosing what your point of view is, you know, as you present information for people to deal with. Like authenticity is like the prime virtue, you know, right. of the internet. And, uh, and so a, a news industry that's had a real tradition of presenting itself as impartial, you know, that feels inauthentic to a lot of people, I think, in the context of, of, the, of the digital present. And so I think that, that really stood out to us as we looked at the work. I read a piece in Washington Monthly that you co-authored with the CEO of J-Labs, uh, Judy Estrin, and it was a really interesting and provocative article. It started with a story of a cholera epidemic in London and described the advent of the word pollution to name what was going on in that situation. For people who haven't read that, tell us that story. Yeah, so um, 
as you know, London was one of the earliest uh, European cities to 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 densify at an extreme rate um, as the industrial Re revolution started to take hold. So I, I'm not sure you know people sort of really understand that like the vast majority of population growth globally is dates back to you know between 1820 and 1840. Is really industrialization is what has enabled us to multiply at these at these incredible rates. And so um, London in the early 19th century had you know, unprecedented numbers of people uh, you know, living together in close quarters and living near where they were engaged in industrial production. And so this led to you know, catastrophic cholera uh, outbreaks. You know, tens of thousands of people in some cases would die. And there was sort of, there was sort of no way to control what was, what was going on. And you know, for thousands of years, you know, our approach to medicine had been about the person, you know, the, here's the person with the disease. We need to, we need to keep this person from being close to other people here, you know, and what, but of course, what was happening was a fundamentally new phenomenon, which is that disease had moved from being an individual condition to a social condition. It was a function of people living together in close space. And so after, you know, and this, this had gotten, I mean, it was, it's sort of hard for people to comprehend how bad this was. It was, it was not only were tens of thousands of people dying, it was like, you know, parliament couldn't hold hearings because mm. it smelled so bad. Um, there was just so much human waste going into the Thames uh, River. And so they had tried a bunch of different solutions and it was actually an engi engineer, this guy named Joseph Bazalget, who, who said, you know, the prob our problem is not a problem of medicine per se. You know, our problem is a social industrial problem, which is that we need to find a way to get rid of waste. And so he proposed a comprehensive sewer system for London. It took a long time to build, but once it was built, I think with one minor exception, there was never a major outbreak of cholera ever again in the city. And so, you know, this is an example of thinking anew. Industrialization forced us to, to one, confront health concerns as public health concerns, Right, so epidemiology, right, the study of of disease through a population that dates to, you know, having to confront disease as a social fact, and it forced us to confront our own waste, and not as a personal as a personal thing, although it's deeply personal to each of us, uh, but as a social thing. And so we started to come up with words over the course of the 19th century, like pollution, to describe. The, our own wastes, the wastes of our industrial processes. And the naming process was important in order to occasion management for these phenomena. We had to give this thing a name as a social problem that we had to grapple with. Uh, otherwise, we were never going to be able to confront this thing that people or factories or businesses were doing as an individual matter. So fast forward today, what you're saying is that Today, like the factories of the early industrial age two centuries ago, these digital advances have given rise to a kind of pollution that's hurting our quality of life, which of course you've called digital pollution. Um, say more about that. What are examples of, of digital pollution and its effects? Well, I, like I, what I, the first thing I would say is that you know, digital technology has, you know, has been an unprecedented good for society in so many ways. And, and there's no, I, 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 I'd be happy to debate with anyone about that, but I think the fact that we're having this conversation is a testament you know, to the power of digital technology as are one million other conveniences um, 
you know, within our, within our lives. Um, it's just an inextricable dimension of our lives now that's opened up incredible possibilities for human advancement and flourishing and economic development and, and expression of identity and meaning making in the world. There's no question about that. The sort of point of the analogy is that is again to, to force us to confront individual behaviors um, as social, as, as social phenomena. And so the challenge that Judy and I are trying to lay down in the article is to say that just as, again, industrialization enables a huge amount of population growth, but just as industrialization was enabling all this good, it had these side, these byproducts that we had to confront as, 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 as a social responsibility. And we want to argue that the same thing is happening digitally. And so, for example, you know, as you've asked, um, you know, think about things like misinformation. You know, what we want to, what we're trying to argue in the article is that, you know, an individual act of misinformation may be, may be misguided, it may be irresponsible on the part of the individual. The problem we face is the way, the quantity of misinformation in a given social media platform and the way in which social media itself can amplify that misinformation to make it more potent than it already was. That's what we think of as digital pollution. And so that's an externality that becomes a social responsibility, the kind of thing we have to think about managing if we want these platforms and digital technology to contribute to the health of our democracy. So it's, it's really about accounting for, um, it's really about accounting for the byproducts of having these incredibly powerful technologies that are adding all kinds of, all kinds of value. You know, you don't get the quality of life you have today without a lot of carbon dioxide being spewed into the air. I think you probably don't also get the great internet that we have today without the risk of misinformation, without the risk of hate speech, without the vulnerabilities to our election system that we're now seeing, um, without in some cases some of the, the, the threats to mental well-being um, from the amount of attention uh, that, these, that these digital platforms command. That's the kind of thing that we want people to pay attention to, not as the technology is either, you know, in a binary way, good or bad, and not just as the individual responsibility of the people who maybe contribute this content, but as a, as a social, as a kind of social um, responsibility that we all have as, as a piece of this ecosystem to manage if we want the good to, to, outweigh, uh, to outweigh the potential harm. Yeah, and the article, and, and what I hear you saying here is we have to think of ways to manage it collectively, I think, to use the term that you use, that it's it's gone beyond buyer beware. I think, you know, there are those who say, well, you've got all the information you need at your fingertips. So you as the consumer should be responsible for sorting, you know, sorting out the good from the bad. But you're saying that there's a collective responsibility here. Is that, are we talking about regulation or what does that look like? Well, I mean, I think, you know, uh, you know, for better or worse, I think we sort of end at the paradigm shift of, of think about collective responsibility. I mean, there's different models of collective responsibility. I, you know, one thing I, I want to point out, though, is some kinds of externalities, you know, just can't be on individuals, right? If a factory is spewing toxic waste into a pond, you can't, you can't really just say, well, move somewhere else, right? right. At some point, it's that the, the benefits that we seek from the industrial producer are causing a byproduct that's imposing itself on a community. And I think when you look at digital technology, you can find some of those things. I mean, the, re the, the fact that the special counsel, Mueller, found evidence of systematic abuse of these, of these platforms in order to manipulate election is a consequence that's been foisted on us. You individually could choose not to use social media, and it would have no impact on that vulnerability that's been foisted on us. So that's, that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing, uh, to more directly answer your question, is you know, we've got a lot of different models of collective 
responsibility. There is a regulatory model, right? So in the example of industrial pollution, you know, if you want to build a power plant, there's a lot of rules that you have to follow and certain kinds of checks and monitoring that you have to subject yourself to. You know, so that's, that's, that's a model of, 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 uh, of responsibility that comes through regulation. But, you know, we found we have models of, of responsibility that, that come through self-regulation as well. You know, while there are laws about auto safety, auto manufacturers do a lot of things to make their cars safe in a particular way. They have a lot of choice about how they deploy those features. And some auto manufacturers, you know, compete on the basis of what the, what the features are that make their cars safer. So we've got, you know, we've got a model in which um, you know, private producers are taking some of these things into their own hands. And then of course, we've got, you know, examples of individual responsibility as well, um, where individuals play a role, uh, or I should say individ the individual role in collective responsibility. So, you know, you, I don't know about you, I got educated on being a safe driver. I got educated on what I need to do to be safe. I've been educated about a lot of ways to be part of a healthier society, right? How not to be someone who's transmitting certain kinds of diseases, how to help, you know, how to help my family, how to help others in my community from transmitting certain kinds of diseases. I've been educated about certain kinds of vice, like drinking and smoking and gambling. So, you know, we've got models, you know, that target the individual, that target uh, companies, that target um, that target regulators and probably some of our most mature examples of where we're really able to manage um, and mitigate the side effects of, of, um, of the kinds of industrial production that we rely on are ones that sort of draw on all three. Um, you know, what the, the thing that it seems to me that makes driving really much safer today than it was 50 or 60 years ago is we've got some baseline laws about how to drive, how roads are constructed, what auto manufacturers should do. We've got auto companies that produce those features, advertise them to consumers, and in some cases compete on them. And then we've got consumers who are willing to buckle their seatbelt in. And when you add all those things together, it is factually true that it's just much safer to drive uh, than it was 50 or 60 years ago. And so uh, smoking is another good example. You know, we've got laws in some cases about where a person can smoke. Um, we've got, uh, and, and laws about the kind of information that we need to get. We probably have somewhat reticent uh, but at least compliant uh, companies with those laws. And then we've got a whole generation of people who say, I'm not sure this is really the right thing for me to do. And that has radically changed, you know, the trajectory in this country. It's unfortunately a much more bleak situation in other countries, but it's radically changed the trajectory in this country of the way that we treat a form of vice that we see ourselves as free to do, but not free of consequences on the collective. That when someone gets lung cancer, that's a, that's a consequence on the collective that we found a way to come to grips with. That was a really difficult paradigm shift. You know, in some ways that was the paradigm shift of the major lawsuits of the 90s was to point out that this individual choice was having a collective cost and that we didn't want to take the choice away, but we did want to find ways to mitigate and manage the collective cost. As you look at the digital landscape, understanding that analogy, it works really well. Um, is there any areas where you see, you know, any, anybody heading in that direction that you describe when you look at the digital landscape? I, I see a lot of honest effort. I mean, first of all, we're having an incredibly intense conversation about this. I mean, five or six years ago, um, you know, these, you know, I would say that, um, you know, certainly the average Americans saw these companies mostly as providing a convenient service. Maybe they thought they were by providing an annoying at best service they didn't want to be a part of, but overall a convenient service. And, uh, and you know, regulators, um, you know, thought these companies were just the neatest thing. 
Um, there was some discussion around privacy at the margins, but there were just not significant debates happening about, about some of the challenges associated, particularly with social media technology, and certainly not any conversations happening about the level of power that some of these individual companies were wielding over the, you know, where conversation was happening, how it was happening, the experience of individuals. That's changed radically you know, in the last two years. So I think, I think we're starting to come to grips with the fact that, um, you know, uh, that this is a, just an, uh, uh, an inevitable dimension of our existence now that's inextricably bound up with, um, with how we live our lives, how we connect to each other, how we engage in commerce, how we form our own identities and think about ourselves. So I think that, you know, that itself is really positive. I also think that, um, you know, you see signs that, the, that, that either for, um, for crass rent-seeking reasons of avoiding regulation or because they're genuinely concerned, you know, many of the companies are sort of trying to start to talk about these things. You know, Facebook has, has, has been talking, you know, openly about, um, you know, the ways that content decisions uh, are made on the platform, has talked openly uh, to some extent about privacy decisions, has talked openly about some of the vulnerabilities of the technology to, uh, to manipulation. Uh, you know, YouTube is, an increasing, is increasingly in public conversations um, about, about, you know, how safe the content on YouTube is for different kinds of audiences. Um, uh, Twitter, you know, has talked a lot about, um, you know, its own community standards and whether they're sort of conducive to a healthier digital conversation. Um, so I, I wouldn't necessarily put my money on these problems solving themselves. I would say, you know, the, 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 the national conversation, the global conversation has become much more full-throated. And then in other, you know, um, regions, particularly Europe, you know, regulators are working really hard to become sophisticated more quickly. I think they've got a long way to go. I think the learning curve is really steep. I think we saw in the, in the, in the hearings about a year ago of Mark Zuckerberg in Congress that a lot of legislators don't fundamentally do not understand this technology. And so I think we've got some work to do uh, to understand it. But I, I, there, there's a, there's, there's, I think there is a growing realization that this technology is having society-wide consequences and that we need to start to understand what those consequences are and begin to make rules and decisions uh, together uh, about what that future should look like. Well, you have done a lot of great thinking on this and funded a lot of smart work on these issues. I believe people can uh, read a lot about it uh, right on the Knight Foundation's website, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Knight's commissioned a lot of research on this at, at uh, kf.org. Uh, you can find, you know, extensive polling that we've done about the impact of digital technology on journalism and media in particular, about the state of trust in media. Um, and the relationship of trust and media to our democracy. Uh, and we're also, you know, continue to do a lot of grant making uh, in, in, in these domains as well. And frankly, you know, this is a place where we're always looking for partners. I mean, we, we have uh, put front and center, um, you know, and, uh, opportunities that we think are really promising where people are onto something and we're happy to talk to anybody uh, about uh, who's, who's interested in working on these issues um, because, um, you know, no one's no one's figured it out yet, um, but the stakes are obviously uh, infinite. And I think we should we have reason to be optimistic uh, that we can figure out, um, you know, how the promise of digital technology can go together with the promise of democracy. What's one thing that makes you optimistic? Um, there's a lot of things that make me optimistic. I think the thing that makes me most optimistic is that the a young generation is not naive about these challenges. So, uh, for example, you know, we we did um, 
for several years now, we've actually polled um, college students for their views on free speech. But one of the things we've asked them about is, you know, how they see that what they see is the impact of social media on free speech. And what's interesting is, you know, a digitally native generation that sign shows no signs of turning back from the, the, the convenience, the promise, the opportunity of digital technology and their usage habits is incredibly ambivalent about its consequences. So young people, you know, are the first to point out that it's too easy to silence people. Uh, online. Young people are the first to point out that you can't always trust what you see online. Young people are the first to point out that some of that invective and harassment can chill uh, the ability to have, um, you know, rational and open conversation online. So I think the fact that the generation that in, is going to build the future, that is, the, that is, that has, that has, has never known a world without this technology is also really sober about its downsides is something that should, you know, make us all optimistic that this is, that this is a group of young people who understand the promise and the perils. And the only way that you can manage to the promise without being overwhelmed by the perils, I think is through understanding and a young generation really understands um, these realities. And so, you know, to me, I think if we can get out of the way, in some sense of young people, um, you know, that, that is going to really accelerate uh, our efforts to see democracy thrive, despite, um, despite not only despite, but, but by taking advantage of, you know, so many of these digital transformations. Well, we will end on that optimistic note. Thanks so much for your contributions to this really important area of inquiry. I think you've put out some really provocative ideas for people to chew on and, um, I know our listeners will be glad to know that you all are continuing uh, down this path and on this job. So thank you very much. Yeah, well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity.